you can't be too optimistic, right? You have to, you have to say, look, here's where we are. Here's the facts. But fundamentally, our role has been to move people out of this, move out of, in some sense, some darkness uh, and into some optimism and, and light. That's kind of fundamentally what leadership is about. And you can't be unrealistic in that optimism, but it is your role. It is your role to say, look, we can do this. Um, and it has to be a little bit more than patting people on the back and say, there you go, let's go do it. Um, you've got to make sure that policies are moving, that resources are moving, and that you're leading the way. Welcome to Innovating Together, a podcast produced by the University Innovation Alliance. This is a podcast for busy people in higher education who are looking for the best ideas, inspiration, and leaders that will help you improve student success. I'm your host, Bridget Burns. Each week, I partner with a journalist to have a conversation with a sitting college president, chancellor, system leader, or someone in the broader ecosystem who's really an inspiring leader. And the goal is to have a conversation to distill their perspective and their insights gathered from their leadership journey. Our hope is that this is inspiring and gives you something to look forward to each week. This episode, my co-host is Inside Higher Ed co-founder and CEO, Doug Lederman. We're so excited to be back filming shows, uh, surfacing wisdom, which is what we do. We want to elevate the leaders and the values and the voices that we think are leading in the sector and we should be elevating. So really excited to finally be back having these conversations. And today is definitely going to be one of those really good ones. We are joined today by uh, Taylor Randall, who's the relatively new president of the University of Utah, though he's been at Utah for a long time. He and Bridget have some some news to share or recent news. Uh, welcome, President Randall. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me this morning, Doug. Bridget, it's great to see you again. Yeah, you too. So for those of you who are at home uh, who don't know, last week I was on the University of Utah campus uh, meeting President Randall IRL for the first time. We were finally being able to unveil the long-awaited uh, news that the University of Utah is the next campus to join the University Innovation Alliance, um, which is a small group of institutions who are op operating as a multi-university laboratory for student success innovation, accelerating the implementation of proven innovations on their campus to increase the number and diversity of college graduates in the country. So just very excited. University of Utah at the U. I wore my red. We have lots of photos wearing red. It was it was perfect. So, I, I, you couldn't have been more on brand for us anyway. We appreciate it. And we're very excited to be part of this Innovation Alliance. It, it just meets everything that we're trying to do here at this university. So very excited to participate. Well, we're super excited. And it also gave me a chance to get to know a little bit more about you. And that's the episode and the chance for us to learn about your leadership, about what really draws you to this position. And especially because you have unique circumstances, I think, having been a longstanding dean that was beloved at the University of Utah to now become the president, that has to have some benefits that people know you, but again, um, challenges and that everybody knows you. So uh, we're really excited to learn how you navigate that unique circumstance of coming in as a president in this moment. So we'll just start right there in terms of um, I would love to hear your thoughts about that um, experience of being loving this place, knowing this place, but the decision to, to step up and become the president. That's a that's a big one. Yeah. You know, thanks for that question. 
my history at this university goes back probably too many years. I'm we're probably a family stuck in a serious rut. I come from a line of three generations of faculty members here at the University of Utah. So you might say we are nuts about this place. We're irrationally passionate about this place. And so for me, this is absolutely my dream job. This institution has meant so much to me over my career, but also my family's career. We've seen changes. We've seen almost 100 years of history here collectively um, with our family. Um, But it's also been, I think, for us, not only part of our identity, but also kind of part of our mission in life is to make uh, this university great for the state of Utah. And that's, I think, really the reason I took it. I will say, obviously, as you step from being a dean into a much larger role, there's a lot to learn still. Um, I knew a lot about the business school where I came from. I certainly knew a lot about the university through the interactions I had. But one of the first things you've got to do is just sit down and assume you don't know as much as you think you do and listen to individuals. And I spent six months and it was probably the most invigorating six months I've really ever had in a career. I wish I could have taken you with me. It was like uh, I was like a kid in a candy shop, just listening to the remarkable things that happen on this campus, the individuals that have passion for higher education or the research they're doing. It was an absolutely spectacular experience. And what I did learn is that there was a lot to still understand about the dynamics of this university and how it worked and where it wanted to be. And it's a university that has incredible ambition but also has a heart that is larger than anything I've ever been able to kind of even comprehend. These are people that want to have societal impact on an unparalleled level. They want to address the needs of society, both educationally and on the research side. And to me, that is just invigorating every day I walk into the office. What you said about sort of learning, seeing things and learning experience during ascendancy to the presidency that you hadn't understood before, can you share a little bit about what kinds of things those were? Because I'm guessing, you know, listen, the vast majority of our listen of our listeners are not in that role at, at their institutions. Presumably there are a lot of people at your institution who it would probably help you to if they understood it better. So what are some of those things that became clear that weren't clear as dean and faculty member, et cetera? Well, you know, this is kind of part of my research style. I, I think I think you are, excuse me, my, my leadership style. I think you've got to understand the personalities, the heart, the soul, the values of an institution. And I certainly knew part of my part of campus really well. But when you sit down and begin to listen um, to other leaders across campus and what they're trying to do, you begin to see a much bigger picture and quite honestly, a bigger set of values that you've got to kind of bring into the equation and and into the the leadership process. You begin to understand what makes people tick, um, what motivates them intrinsically. And I think what's amazing about higher education is you really haven't, you have a a, a set of people that are just completely mission-based, right? And and that's, it's very different than often the private sector where it's kind of about money and to understand those passions around campus. So, you know, for, for example, you, we've got a massive health sciences side of campus and they were at the time I came in just kind of at the tail end of COVID to understand what they had been through from the nursing <laughs> programs. Uh, and we all saw that on the news, but to just sit down and talk to them, try to understand how they were trying to make themselves more resilient was a quite inspiring 
And they were lessons that you could take to other parts of campus. I love that. And I also, it just makes me think about um, one of the things that we should ask in the future, Doug, is when, what do deans need to understand about the presidency they don't understand, right? So I think, I think there's definitely some illumination in the leadership journey there that super important and about motivation as well. That's really great. I want to just tease out a little bit more in terms of if there's anything that's been particularly um, challenging about transitioning in this moment when, you know, we're coming out of COVID, people are in person, it's been weird. There's also been this burnout epidemic and higher ed's going through a variety of really at times existential conversations layered upon each other. And there's just a lot. Being a human in the United States right now is a lot. And I would say being uh, ascending to a president in that moment in time as well. So I'm just wondering what for you um, was the most challenging about this moment to transition? You know, there's no question that um, COVID just had an outsized effect on what we've been doing in higher education. And, and I would say the positive of it for me as a leader is um, it taught me to communicate and empathize in very, very different ways. You begin to realize in this COVID environment that any policy you lay down had such an individual impact. And it, it, I almost felt like anytime I said, here's where we're going to go and here's what we're going to do, I had to have an individual conversation with every person on campus to make sure that they were okay and that they were going to be able to make it through this. And so I think the expanded empathy um, through this whole situation has been a big positive. I think very differently now about implementing anything, right? Because uh, COVID gave me the opportunity to see the various viewpoints in our faculty, in our students, in our in our staff. I mean, I think the second big learning for me is the role of a leader in painting an optimistic future. You can't be too optimistic, right? You have to you have to say, look, here's where we are. Here's the facts. But fundamentally, our role has been to move people out of this, move out of, in some sense, some darkness uh, and into some optimism and, and light. And that's kind of fundamentally what leadership is about. And you can't be unrealistic in that optimism, but it is your role. It is your role to say, look, we can do this. Um, and it has to be a little bit more than, you know, patting people on the back and say, there you go, let's go do it. Um, you've got to make sure that policies are moving, that resources are moving and that, and that you're leading the way. I think that's really great. And I agree. I hadn't thought about that, that if people were too optimistic, people wouldn't trust you. If, especially in your, you're in the midst of crisis, like it's not, it's not credible to act like everything's perfect, but to be, you gotta be upbeat even when things are hard. So that's uh, I think that's an important nuance. Yeah, I'm curious how you think about the elements of doing that, because some of it obviously has to be picking people up and and giving them hope. It also seems like you need to be able to be sort of transparent about the challenges and provide exhortation about the need and the potential ways to attack them. So what do you think are the key elements of that of that blending of the optimism with the sort of acknowledgement of the potential problems and how to solve them. I think one of the things that frequently worked for us is very open dialogue. 
and gathering data from everyone. <laughs> and, and, and quite honestly, I think this is something that's going to generalize in the future, just the way we all now deal with information. And so we had many, many large scale meetings, whether it was on Zoom, um, right, and most of the time it was on Zoom. And you just you just had to spend at least 20 to 30 minutes just saying, let's talk about the situation and the way you're seeing it. And that was really a data gathering exercise. We would share our data, they would share theirs. We would try to reconcile the, the differences. And, and once you did that and you, you got people on a kind of a common framework, right, for understanding where they were, then you could actually have really sensible dialogues. And I will say the following is, as a leader, you'd go in and you'd say, I think maybe this is where we ought to go. But I, I began to amend my process. I would may, maybe say going in, I need to be prepared to know what options we have available. And then I've got to listen to people, right? I've got to say, look, here are the three options that come out of this situation. Where are we on this? Where should we, you know, where should we be? Where should we go? And um, often that flexibility in joint problem solving built the trust, right? Because people saw the decision as it was coming. And so to me, that was a shift in my leadership style. It was, I, I couldn't walk in and say, this is where I want to go. I had to walk in and say, here are three options. Let's let's make this decision together. I think that's super interesting, especially it makes me think about how you make decisions as a leader and how it's not just about balancing optimism with transparency. I think that's super important, but I also am just curious. It makes me think about as a result of COVID, as a result of working with your team so closely and being on Zoom calls and doing a crisis mode for the last few years, right? Has it changed how you like to make decisions as a leader? Oh, uh, you know, absolutely. It, it certainly, I mean, I, th I think I had this philosophy before that, that, you know, you've really got to bring people along, but I would say I learned how to do it in that crucible of, of COVID. You realize, particularly with the limited forms of communication, um, that you had to have some patience. Um, and you had to, while decisions had to be quick, you had to spend a lot more time just making sure that everyone involved in this decision had had understood the the logic behind it and had a, a voice and you know you, you're never gonna we knew this um covid was the greatest example you never please everybody but at least you can you can give voice to those decisions and i think it does help ultimately in the implementation because people understand why you're doing things We've talked a good bit so far about the what, about the how. Um, maybe let's shift a little bit to the what, you know, at Utah, but also maybe more broadly in higher education. What do you consider to be the most significant kinds of change, transformation that institutions like yours need to be? And there may be a little bit of, of how in there as well, but because I think there's a lot about change management uh, that institutions need to change. But what yeah. are your, what are your, what, do you, what is your sense of the, the key lines of attack for? Sure. For you know, um, I'm sure on this, on this show, you've, you've discussed all of the different changes coming, you know, through higher ed. And we certainly are experiencing those in spades as well in our own shape or form. Um, we're a public institution. And I fundamentally think we're at a point where we have to redefine what it means to be a public institution and redefine what our obligation is to our stakeholders. The state, in our case, state of Utah, the public at large through our research enterprise, but in, and in particular, our students. And so 
where we're focusing on is kind of top to bottom, redefining a set of experiences for stakeholders and really trying to take their view in mind. So I like to say we're going to redefine the customer or the student experience uh, at the University of Utah. We're going to start from admission standards and try to say what are different ways we should be welcoming people to our institution rather than shutting them out. Um, how do we make sure that they get through our institution in time and they have great outcomes? And then, you know, one of my kind of my pet passions is that I think higher institutions of higher education should actually create extreme passion and confidence in individuals. And I was fortunate enough here at the University of Utah that I had some faculty members that did that. They took me aside. They taught me how to learn. They taught me to know when I didn't know things. But instead of running away from problems, run to them. They taught me how to identify what made me tick in life and what gave me energy. And that to me, that's the fun challenge on the student side of higher education is trying to decide, trying to design a set of programs that make people just completely thrilled with where they're headed in life. Um, our other constituents are, 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 are clearly, you know, our state and our state stakeholders. What are we doing? If we're a research university, how do we demonstrate the power of a research university um, within the state? I'll give you a very specific problem that we're working on right now here in the state of Utah. The Great Salt Lake, if you look on the map, this great body of water is shrinking dramatically. It has incredible ecological consequences if this doesn't go away. If you're a skier, the powder goes away, right? The wildlife that surrounds that lake goes away. It, it's, it's, it's literally maybe a hemispheric event if we can't protect this lake. Well, one of the things we've done with the research universities in the state is for the first time ever, we convened all the researchers and we said, what do policymakers need to know about the dynamics of the lake, right, to protect it and make it thrive in a serious way? And we have met multiple times now with the researchers. And for the first time ever, there's consensus around inflows and what levels the, the, the lake should be at to be at healthy levels. That's a very practical way that a research university can affect a state in a positive way. And absolutely critical, especially at this moment in time. So that's super timely. I want to just go a little bit, just a slight shift. I, I mean, I completely agree with the idea of actually redefining what it means to be a university. And especially your, your mention about creating confidence in students, because they were stuck behind screens for two years. And the thing I've described to folks that's most necessary is institutions building a curriculum that gives them courage pills. Because that's what our students need. They need experiences. Agree, yeah. and that's not like a natural thing. Uh, if you look at the modern, the, the lecture style, right? We have to evolve pedagogy to actually give students the confidence. And I, and I think that you learn that from like courage building, like team-based activities, like the chance to try stuff because otherwise they were captured behind a screen. The anxiety piece that we're hearing, one element of it is that they've been, you know, basically just stuck somewhere for a while. So I love that idea. So I want to, but I want to shift to talking about what has surprised you about your career. Like, did you think that you were going to end up being a college president, especially not, alma mater? Yeah, not in a million years. That's been the fun part about my career. I mean, if, if you look back for just a little, you know, story, I'm an undergraduate business major. I take a job that I don't like 
interestingly, why did I not, uh, why didn't I not appreciate the job? Cause I never did an internship. The career services at the time of the university probably didn't deliver for me what they, what they, what they should have. Uh, so I go to graduate school and I, I go just to get an MBA and I'm thinking, Oh, I'll go become a consultant or I don't know, a financial uh, analyst on wall street. And as I'm in the middle of this, um, I remember those lessons from undergraduate, you know, what makes you tick? What, you know, what is your passion? And, and, and those things were not my passion. And I realized my passion was in the development of people and the development of ideas. And so my internship in an MBA was very non-traditional. I decided I wanted to go work with some faculty members to see what they were doing uh, and how they were affecting both students and what they were doing in research. Turned out it was the best summer I've ever had in my life. And at that point, I said, well, I may have just spent too much money on an MBA. Uh, I'll finish it. But I think I'm going to head into uh, a Ph.D. program and I, I, I want to get into high, higher ed. And uh, that was that was probably the, the big turning point was that summer internship where I realized this is what is fun for me. That's a perfect testament to um, the value of higher ed. And also that makes me want to ask a bunch of questions about internships and I mean, I, I, I sometimes wonder if an internship is, is it more important that it teaches you what you don't want to do or what you do want? Because for me, it was what I didn't want to do. And that was so helpful to not have to waste a career learning that lesson. So, so interestingly, I think the first ones, uh, my, my opinion is the same as yours, Bridget. I think it actually teaches you what you don't want to do. If I've, I've even... I told my kids they couldn't make the same mistake as I did. I, they, they needed to do internships after their sophomore, junior, junior years. And if I look at the evolution of those kids and those internships, it was always, yeah, that wasn't what I like. But I did see something over in the next room that I thought was, you know, my passion. And so then they moved over into the next room. And that was extremely valuable. Yeah, what we need to do to, with that is all we're doing is two summer internships that's not a lot of opportunities. So that's figuring out how to build shorter term work experiences in that give you more chances to both learn what you like and what you don't like is clearly one of the directions we need to move in. No, Doug, I love, I absolutely love that idea. So you think about, you know, how do you reconfigure curriculum uh, to be able to provide those, those learning experiences? Um, you know, interesting thing uh, when I became dean at the the business school is is I realized that the curriculum was exactly the same <laughs> as it had been uh, 25 years earlier. So we did something really basic, and I'm sure you all have done it. We bought uh, 10 pizzas, and we put uh, 20 students uh, on a couch. We said, "Would like you to just tell us what you would like to see." if you were a freshman coming in to this university and you're interested in business. And they laid out a pretty simple plan. One, uh, we wanna be able, your curriculum doesn't allow us to explore possibilities. So we wanna do fast case studies where we actually get to go to companies and we get to talk to people and understand their careers. Okay. Two, we wanna be with each other while we're doing that, right? To your point, Bridget, this is not a group of students that wants to be on screens. They wanted group projects. Uh, they wanted to do case analyses. They wanted to get in as involved as, as possible uh, in these companies that they were going to go visit. 
three, they actually wanted it to be fun. Now, I know that may sound like an odd concept, but it is one of our design principles that education should actually be fun. Um, and so we could we could accommodate that. And so really out of 10 pizzas in an hour, the entire first year experience at the business school was recreated. And we're now taking that simple that simple way of doing things around our entire campus. We're redesigning our science curriculum, you know, based on that. We now have freshman lab experiences where you can go in and work on industrial size problems that are that are actually given to you by industry in your freshman year. Um, you get to visit those companies where you'll go visit or where you where you potentially work as if you're coming in as, out of a STEM degree and. And again, it connects people to their passions really early on. And suddenly they they guide themselves through higher education at a very, very different viewpoint. I love That's that. a pretty, pretty good return on investment for that 100 or 120 bucks for the 12, 10 pizzas, right? I don't know. Uh, I, haven't been, use, I, haven't, we, I haven't been in Salt Lake for a while, but yeah, we use coupons, Doug. So. Okay, there you go. Perfect. 60. Perfect. That's awesome. <laughs> Well, this has been really wonderful, President Randall. I just want to land us land the plane with our questions that our viewers always love. And, and so it's kind of rapid fire. Um, the first one is, um, if you think back on the best advice and most valuable advice that you received, what advice was it, especially about helping you with your career? Never make a decision solely on money. Make it on your passion. And that was about deciding what to do? Yeah. Coming out of that MBA program. Okay. Love it. And then when you're talking to people who are, say, you know, baby deans or uh, assistant deans or whatever, and thinking about the uh, moving up in leadership, what advice do you find yourself giving to others about leadership? You know, I, I say just the following. You have to be optimistic about people if you want to be a leader. If you are optimistic, you will succeed. Uh, if you find yourself uh, too much on the pessimistic side, may not be may not be right for you you may be leading yourself into uh, some pain that you do not want but if you love working with people and you're optimistic about what they can be keep going i love it yeah generosity people's assumptions about what their motivations are love it um lastly uh is there a book that you that has helped you in terms of uh your leadership journey that you frequent most frequently recommend to other people you know, there's not a single book. There's a there's kind of a top, you know, general genre, I, I would say. Um, I find history uh, to be the most instructive uh, leadership manual I've ever I've ever seen. I love Doris Kearns Goodwin. Um, anything that she has written. Um, one of my favorites is uh, No Ordinary Time. It is the it is the history of the United States when Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt occupied um, the White House. And it gives a remarkable perspective of just the internal workings of the United States during these world wars. Uh, and particularly, it gives you a lot of insight into what Eleanor was doing during those times and kind of the tension between the two. And I just love the way that uh, they use the creative tension to solve big, hairy problems. I really appreciate you spending this time with us. I think that's very helpful for us in terms of the nuggets of wisdom to give folks in the, the rest of the week. Um, so thank you, President Randall. Thank you, Doug, for being back on the show and for our audience back at home. We will see you on Monday, actually, with uh, Javier Reyes, who's the interim chancellor at the University of Illinois, Chicago. And we're very excited to have you there. But thank you again, President Randall, and we will see you all soon. 
Thanks, Bridget. Thanks, Doug.